We've all got a favorite band, and every band began by playing in tiny venues and relying on word of mouth to build their fan base. Their talent and charisma, the equivalent of a great product, attract an organic following. They're content performing for the love of their craft and the connection they share with their loyal audience. But then they begin to dream bigger. They realize that to truly make their mark in the world, they need to venture beyond the local scene. This requires a different kind of effort, like a tour. To go on this tour, they must proactively promote their music, play at major venues, and engage with fans on a larger scale. This band's journey parallels what often happens in the B2B SaaS world. A company can develop an excellent product and build an initial customer base primarily through organic product-led growth. But if they want to accelerate growth and reach their true potential, they might want to consider a sales-led motion. This isn't just about pushing for more sales. It's about understanding their customers, personalizing their approach, and delivering value beyond the product itself. And much like a band taking on a tour, it requires strategic thinking, planning, and execution. And there's no one better to guide us through this process than Tim Geisenheimer, CEO and co-founder of Correlated. Tim has been instrumental in not just applying a sales-led approach to a product-led company, but also intertwining these two strategies in a seamless, effective manner. His deep understanding of this duality, coupled with his ability to operationalize it, makes him a valuable advisor for companies looking to balance and integrate these growth strategies. In today's episode, recorded at the end of 2022, we'll dive deep into Tim's approach, explore the journey of Correlated, and understand how they've managed to blend a strong sales-led motion with a product-led growth strategy. From discussing the trends in go-to-market strategies to lessons from his time at Twitter, we will navigate the intricacies of selling and serving in the SaaS world. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Tim Geisenheimer speaks to Andrew Davies about adding a sales motion onto product-led growth. They talk about the inconvenient truth of PLG, product-led versus sales-led, aka makers versus shakers, how a PLG team can add a sales function, selling to different personas, and current trends in PLG. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for a look at the steps to implement a sales-led motion on top of your product-led growth. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of this podcast, tell us what resonated most about Tim's story. First up, the inconvenient truth of PLG. Hey, Tim, great to have you on Protect the Hustle. Perhaps you can just give us a, a quick introduction to yourself and uh, what you do Monday to Friday with Correlated. Sure. Andrew, great to see you. I'm Tim, CEO and co-founder of Correlated. Correlated helps uh, sales and go-to-market teams at product-led growth companies uh, identify the, the best users and accounts to, to go after for conversion and upsell and expansions. Yeah, happy to obviously dive in more on, on kind of what we're doing and what we see and talk more generally about PLG. You sit, let's define PLG first. So product-led growth is assuming, I'm assuming is the acronym you're, you're meaning. Uh, what does PLG mean to you before we dive in? You know, I think to really distill it down, PLG is sort of a way of distributing your product as a SaaS company. The simplest definition is can an end user, someone who goes to your website, click get started and start using the product kind of on their own without any impediments, without 
having to talk to sales or you know do something like that. They can just get into the product. I think, strictly speaking, that that's like the the best definition of PLGs. You sit as a very interesting kind of next step for many PLG companies. In that you work, my understanding is you work with companies who are then layering on sales teams on top of product led growth. Is that correct? And at what stage do you see that happen? Oftentimes, we come into the picture once you have reach a certain level of scale. And so you might have started your company, you and a couple developers, and you're sitting around a room building your first version of software. You release it, it's self-serve. You get customers paying on a credit card. You're kind of off the races. You start maybe doing maybe a couple million in ARR. All of a sudden, your product's expanding, the service area, and then your your go-to-market functions also expand. So maybe you add marketing on, then you start to maybe add your first sellers. And so I think where we come in is once you have this level of scale of maybe thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of users or more um, using your product, representing hundreds, thousands of accounts, uh, the salespeople who enter that that equation are tasked with figuring out, okay, which of these thousands or more of users and accounts should I spend time on beyond the self-serve part of the product to, to maybe try and upsell them to get them to spend more, or if they're on a free version to get them to convert from free to paid. That's where we come in. We help kind of cut through the noise and help those teams figure it out. So I think one of the inconvenient truths of product-led growth is that it doesn't mean no sales team, right? You know, almost every product-led business adds on a sales team at some point in time for some different you know, element of their expansion or retention or whether it's upsell or a different type of product set. Before we dive into, you know, product-qualified leads and how to product-led and sales-assisted coexist and all of the good stuff that sits under the skin there, it seems like a pretty niche bit of marketing and sales technology to, to set up. What brought you to this point of wanting to start correlated and wanting to help sales teams and revenue teams sell into free user bases and product-led user bases? Problem that I had directly experienced as a um, seller and someone building an early team at a, at a startup that had this this problem, this, this distribution in motion. I was employee 11 at a company called Timescale, open source database company, an open source piece of software that was free. They created a cloud version of that software that was pay-as-you-go, self-serve. I was tasked early on with trying to figure out at zero revenue, you know, what was the initial go-to-market motion? How do we start to get the engine going on top of thousands and thousands of free users of the product? Yeah, I saw it firsthand. And the challenge for me was there was too many leads. There was too many people to go after and I needed a filtering mechanism. And so I kind of built with my co-founder here at Correlated, who was a product manager there, kind of an early version correlated, a much more kind of stripped down version there at timescale. And that was kind of the impetus for, for starting the company. Let's just go back to those days. Let's talk in a bit of depth about what you actually did there. So were you in Salesforce or HubSpot or Marketo? And what did you actually do to build up that tooling to be able to see the signal in the noise of all of these free users of timescale? There, there was less tools than exist today, but we did have Salesforce. Early goal, that sort of what we did was, hey, I want to understand, this was kind of just me at the time, which accounts I should target. So what I did was, took in data related to what those free users were doing. I actually did to get a little more tactical uh, IP enrichment on all of those users so we could do some account matching. I went through and thought a little bit about our ICP and said, okay, here's sort of the list of some of the top accounts that are both indexing high on usage and our good potential ICP targets. And then we went through and uh, tried to ascertain if we could figure out who were the people that were actually using the product. If we couldn't, we did a little bit of cold outreach. And that was sort of the early kind of scrapped together or go to market motion, but simply combining that product usage data that we were collecting from the product into Salesforce and doing some EBM along that those lines was really transformative and allowed us to, to find kind of early revenue there at Timescale. 
next, product-led versus sales-led, aka makers versus shakers. Many in this, uh, listening to this podcast, will be you know building a product-led business customer base. We've got thousands of product-led businesses, most of which about two or have recently added some form of sales team on top. Talk to me in a bit more depth about when a product-led business, whether bootstrapped or, or venture-funded, when a product-led business should think about adding a sales team. What are those early warning signs that this is going to be something that's going to be high yield for the business? There's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all set of rules, but I think there are a couple of markers that, that jump out at me. I think one, have you achieved some level of kind of scale in that early product where, you know, that, that machine's moving along and you're starting to get people coming to you, raising their hand and saying, hey, I have security kind of concerns or I have you know, this set of needs that are maybe outside of kind of a pure seamless self-serve process. Then you you might say, hey, we're getting these hand raisers that you know, need security questionnaires filled out, have sort of other parts of maybe a procurement process they need to attend to. That's sort of a breaking point for us without a sales team. So we need sales to help kind of help those people buy uh, in a way that we're not helping them buy with the product. So I think that would be one. I think the, the second would be in, from a product standpoint, do you have more kind of enterprise type features that go beyond the single end user? Are you uh, enabling kind of team-based features in your product or some other upsell mechanism? And is that something that maybe isn't intuitive in the product itself? And if so, you know, is there then a way that your sales team can come in and sort of upsell beyond that? I think those are kind of two aspects that, you know, basically indicate, hey, it's time for us to maybe add folks on who can work with our existing users, existing customers, and and get them to be more successful and and ultimately spend more on this. When I think about product-led versus sales-led, I often think about makers versus shakers. You need product-led when you're serving a maker uh, who is the end user, the person who gets the value personally from the product. And often you you need to use sales-assisted when you're serving a buying committee, when there's a shaker, there's an economic buyer who has to choose a vendor, choose a provider that's going to form process and team around them. So does that correlate to how you think about the world, that often these tools are built for a maker, um, an end user, a developer or, or, or a designer, and then suddenly they get to the level of scale or complexity or usage that you now need to serve that shaker that, as you say, might have very different needs, security and compliance and collaboration and integration with other tools. So is that often the tripping point? You can get pretty far with the makers. You know, I think if you look at a company like Figma, for example, they had a lot of success with just credit card spending both on the individual level and then team level. And then, you know, obviously they have a very successful sales motion that they've layered on uh, over the last several years as well. But it's certainly possible to get pretty far, especially in this day and age with tools like Paddle to, you know, have seamless payments and and all that in your product uh, so that you're able to you know, be pretty, pretty successful without sort of the sales team having to appeal to the shaker. That said, you know, the example I gave earlier around kind of that security, you know, consideration yeah, those are yeah different personas that are often the you know not the end users. And if you're trying to do a consolidation play, saying multiple different teams are using the product, and we're trying to consolidate the spend across an organization, yeah, those people that would have no knowledge of Figma, for example, because they're on the procurement side, they're going to need to get involved, have you know sort of the assurances around requirements from security or whatever uh, laid out for them, and, and that's often uh, kind of a sales approach and. Yeah, it's, it's going to be different than appealing to those, those end users, those makers. So I, I, I do like that framework a lot. Do you find yourself having to talk to product businesses about the value of adding sales-led? Or have they already seen these triggers themselves? Because I'm sure that, you know, well, certainly I know from some of our research with, with Todd Gardner that 
ACV at average contract value is massively correlated with you know the um, the, the growth of your software business. If you can up that ACV, uh, that's how you bake in higher higher multiples of growth. Do you find yourself having to talk that track, or are people coming to you already understanding that in the market? You know, maybe a few years ago that was uh, more of a debate. I, I don't think we're in a place today where we're having to convince people that that adding fails is you know something they, they need to do i think they've already by the time we're talking to them at least they've already made that that decision i saw one study and i'm, I'm gonna miss the attribution here but i think 96 percent of plg companies have a sales team so it's sort of this you know foregone conclusion at this point that in order to kind of scale out you really do need to, to add add sales um, to your go-to-market motion even if you have a self-serve product before we dig into you know how someone adds a sales team i'd love to get your thoughts on that do you ever see it work the other way where people who are have built a sales-led business are now adding on you know a product-led motion and, and is that ever something you serve or really does there have to be scale on the product-led motion before something like correlated becomes useful we see that a lot and i would say that is something that is harder in some ways than adding sales to a product-led motion i think often if you start out with more of a sales-led motion and forget about the go-to-market side just the product side if you have kind of a product that is you know, not necessarily designed to be self-serve. There's a lot of change that needs to occur on the product side that can be tricky. And then, you know, you also have with a sales-led motion, you know, some level of process related to how customers can get access to your product and and pay you and um, and all that that is, you know, quite a bit different than um, how companies that are kind of self-serve or product-led, you know, start off and, and sort of evolve and grow over time. And so while we do see and, and do help a number of companies that have kind of layered on a self-serve motion on top of an existing uh, sales-led motion, I would say it's quite a bit harder and, and it's something that, that takes uh, you know, the full company effort to, uh, to get behind. And now how a PLG team can add a sales function. Let's try and be really helpful here for people who are listening who have a product-led business that now are thinking about the sales-led motion on top. So what comes first? Then what's next? There, there must be all kinds of challenges with the data infrastructure and team comp plans that we've never had to dealt with before and company culture and product release cycles. Talk me through if you were now coaching a product-led business on how they add a sales team, what they need to go, what they need to walk through. We've written a decently you know, amount about this. Uh, quick plug, go to our, our blog, uh, getcorrelated.com. And there's a lot of content that we put out uh, around this this topic. But I think at a, at a high level, you know, there are a couple of different areas that you really need to think through. And, and some of these span both go to market and, and product and you know and I, I do think that that in and of itself is telling that there's a full company effort to do go to market for product but you know, I think one of the biggest things that we recommend is you know get your data housed in order because ultimately your sales team is going to need to rely on an understanding of what's going on in product what what are customers doing which customers do we need to target and so you know, I think today it can't be an afterthought. It should be something that you really think through uh, up front as you're starting to add on sales. And so, you know, using tools like Segment or, or Data Warehouse to make sure you're gathering all the billing, usage, CRM data, getting it together and cleaned up and consolidated, I think that is a hugely important task. And I think uh, f following that, you know, making sure that you have kind of the right playbooks in place for sales. And a lot of those relate to products. We, we talked about a few of them, you know, earlier. Are you a consolidation place? So that, that Figma example where, you know, your sales team is going to go and try and identify uh, accounts that have multiple workspaces of Figma and then go and try and find maybe a champion 
to then appeal to the sort of senior leadership to say, hey, we need to get all these together in one and here are the benefits of getting a, a site license for Figma. Is that kind of your strategy? Or are you going to play more of a upsell from pro to enterprise and you know, here are the features and, and functionality and enterprise that you're not getting today? So I think there's a, a ton of different playbooks and trying to figure out where does sales slot in, in kind of your go-to-market and, and how your product works or self product works, that, that's going to be really important as well. The last thing you mentioned is comp. I think that is something that a ton of, of companies have talked about that we've had actually on our biweekly community chat, but a few few guests talk about comp. We had someone a few months ago from MongoDB, and they talked a little bit about their kind of usage-based comp. So they look at, for a given territory, for example, uh, within MongoDB, what is the expected forecast for accounts in that territory? And that is how they've set quotas and set comp. And then it's kind of based on a commit level of usage. And so there's a lot, this is maybe a podcast in and of itself to go into the, the, just the comp side, but I do think at a high level, just being thoughtful on how do you price, you know, how should sales be compensated? It's not just an upfront annual deal necessarily that they're going to get, they should get compensated or commissioned on. Yeah, I think those are some of the, the key areas that I would think about as you're, as you're trying to layer in sales. Commission and comp planning when it comes to, to usage-based products, I think is get super complex. Massive shout out to to Breezy and the, the, the bi-weekly forum you run. I've been in that several times. I love it. I love the speakers you're getting into that. I think this crossover of two worlds product-led and sales-assisted is just super interesting from a cultural perspective too. Certainly we see in our in our customer base just a clear distinction between founders who are probably very technical and have set up maybe a bootstrapped business where everything is about the product, the marketing is the product, the sales is the product, the upsell is the product, the customer success is the product from founders who have set up and one of their first hires after they've got an MVP as a sales team. How do you think about dealing with perhaps that culture clash when you're adding a sales-led business onto what's probably been a product-led business previously? What's the topic I, I like too, which is for early stage, what are the right fits for sales or, or go to market? You know, I've been in that role several times. You know, I think I have, seen, you know, with myself, I've seen, you know, kind of where I fit in or hiring someone like me, you know, what should that role be? And I think, you know, regardless of product led or, or other one, when you're hiring kind of those first sellers as a relatively early stage company, and I'm assuming here you're early stage, like you could be, you know, maybe one of these examples of a Zapier where I think they added sales on, you know, when they were at 50 million error or something like that. So I, I'm putting that aside for a second, but let's say you're relatively early stage. You know, I think you're looking for someone that is extremely product aware and product focused and thinking through how does this product work? They're, they're maybe, you know, adept at using the product, you know, depending on what kind of product it is. They're passionate about the problems it solves and they can talk, you know, really fluently to prospective customers about the product and how it could solve different problems. I think it's it's much more important than in sales-led businesses to have that product awareness because the assumption is, for the most part, when you're involved in, in sales deals, there are those people that you're working with, whether they're the champions or you know, not always the the buyer, but they're they, the champions at least will have a lot of familiarity with the products. So you need to kind of do a good job there. And I think also, you know, early sales hires need to be pretty flexible in terms of trying playbooks, iterating quickly. And this is very true for product led as well. You need to be trying different plays, trying different approaches, seeing what kind of works or what doesn't work and, and iterating quickly 
there's not necessarily going to be just one play that, that works. And we see that a lot with, with our customers. They're constantly trying new things. You have to have that kind of level of experimentation as a skill set. Before we go on and just talk about a couple of other topics here, have you got some examples of those playbooks that have really worked or companies you point to who have really done this well and, and how have they done it well? I feel like I'm uh, plugging website, but we actually published a playbook library on our website. So we have a number of examples of kind of plays that, that we've seen work well. I'll maybe highlight some examples I've personally used in, in the past at places like Timescale that you know I think can be effective and that, that I've seen work well. I mean, I think one of the things that we really recommend is because you hopefully have access to that, that product data, you should be leveraging the usage of the product in your outreach. You know, you can assume your outreach is somewhat warm because the person you're, you're reaching out to maybe has used the product. As a result, why not mention how they're using the product, how maybe they could be using it to be even more effective, name some things that they haven't done yet, they haven't enabled this integration, or they haven't used a feature that they have access to. Any way you can personalize that outreach based on usage, really important. I think the other thing that we recommend is trigger point. You should send the email or, or the outreach message however you're, you're deciding to sequence it based on when some sort of key moment happens. And that's going to be different for different companies and different approaches. But you know, some examples we've seen, let's say it's a dev tools product and you price on API calls. If you see a spike in API calls for an account that's in your ICP and you know it's kind of on your on your list, then getting notified about that using that spike in your messaging and then having the message obviously sent out in a timely way could really help get someone to reply and be like, hey, they're, they're paying attention. They're aware of our usage here and they're, you know, that's a helpful approach. I think those are just a couple tangible examples of things we've seen, you know, tactically work well on the sales side for uh, for PLG. And I'm glad you reminded me about it because I think your PLG Playbook library is killer. You've done such a good job there. And if people haven't had a look at it, you know, what we're talking about here is saying, okay, for sales teams, here are some playbooks books. For example, you know, maybe an executive title user has signed up and used one key feature, therefore we create a task for outreach. Or maybe for the marketing team, someone has just suddenly boosted, you know, 30-40% in their usage or in their growth and therefore we want to reach out and trigger a reach out to write a customer story. And there are, you know, I don't know if there's hundreds, but certainly tens of different playbooks for marketers, for customer success, for sales in that playbook library. And they're just really good, whether you're a, a customer of, of Correlated or not. I think they're really good examples of how product-led and sales led can work alongside each other. So I guess all of this comes down to, you know, identifying product qualified leads and opportunities and accounts based on all of these attributes that you're storing within your system. I I appreciate the kind words there. And, you know, I think that that we're we can do an even better job adding even more plays. Uh, we we have probably in dozens there, but but you know, hopefully we'll get to hundreds uh, soon enough. And I think it's um, it's definitely something that you see a lot of innovation in sequencing and sort of cold outbound. And you know, over the last several years, I think that's been an area where there's been a lot of innovation. There hasn't been quite as much, I think, until you know, hopefully we're, we're helping at least on the the PLG sales side. Yeah, you know, I think we're going to continue to invest there. Next, selling to difficult personas. So let's change tack slightly because one thing that I think you've written about before and I find really interesting is that when you add sales to a product-led motion, often you're selling to people and salespeople have the hard job of selling to people who aren't used to receiving sales calls or sales emails. And probably one of the toughest personas is the developer persona. Developers who perhaps they've been using a product, maybe they've started paying for it on a small monthly fee, maybe had a small plan, and now using Correlated, that vendor is going to start reaching out to them uh, to try and upsell them to some wider enterprise plan or some extra 
extra security features. And selling to developers is is really, really hard. So can you talk me through your thinking on, um, let's take that persona specifically as a type of maker that you've now got to you know understand, communicate with, influence, to play part, play a champion role or some role in a wider purchase of the software that they're using? This was near and dear to my heart because Timescale, you know, was uh, a product that was for developers, the da- a database. So, uh, you know, developers are using it to build you know, their core application or something really important. And so trying to understand timing was the most important part. And that's true for sales anywhere. But, you know, I think what I you know learned there and what's really important with developers is timing matters. And so most of the time they're going to uh, for the most part, they're going to want to maybe figure things out on their own, do a lot of their own research and not necessarily want to talk to sales. But there are key moments when you know they're going to be more open to having a sales conversation. And I think for just to use timescale as a specific example, we saw there were moments where the research phase ended and more of a, a formal POC not involving us, but you know, having developers looking at us versus maybe two or three other competing solutions to decide, okay, what's the database I'm going to use for this project? Knowing that that was starting, that process was starting, and they were going to look at pricing and think through, okay, how much is this going to, you know, cost? What are some of the, the features and benefits of Timescale versus other solutions? Having that knowledge of that inflection point around the POC was invaluable because then we were able to hopefully insert ourselves before the hand raise, if there was even going to be a hand raise, and have some influence over over the decision. For developer sales, understanding, is there maybe a decision point around a POC if they're making a decision about building on top of certain technology like APIs or database? If it's more of like a developer productivity tool, you know, is this something they're either looking at us against other products that are quite you know similar, or they're just doing a trial to see if it works for the team? I think that timing piece is really important. So that, that, that'd be one thing, getting the time Right, versus just hitting somebody up with an email right after they sign up because that might not be the right time. So you have to get a little bit more creative. I think the other thing that you know I mentioned earlier, but that was really important for me is referencing sort of what they're doing in the product. One of our customers also has a database product and they have multiple product lines and they have a specific product where if they know that their customers are doing certain things in their product, it actually means that they're a really good fit for this this cross-sell opportunity. And so they look for those markers of the things they're doing in their product and in the database itself. If that happens, it's a, a notification right to sell saying, okay, they're doing the things that indicate they would be a really good fit for this for, for pretty fairly technical reasons. And then the play is basically to say, hey, I saw you're doing these things. You could have much better performance and all the different you know, benefits and features or whatever. Obviously, you to use this product. And so I think those are some key examples where if you're appealing at a technical level to the developer, if you're appealing on a timing, you know, from a timing standpoint to, to them when they're kind of doing their research and making a decision from a PSC standpoint, those are some key ways I think you can win on the sales front. Just to close that thought then, so timing and trigger, yes, absolutely making sure, as you said, there's that, there's that context, the understanding as they're going through that POC. Is there also like an additional burden to show them what you know in terms of data and proof of what they're doing because they'll want to understand why you're reaching out and what the extra value prop is here. This I like to collect people who sell to us too to, to see who does a good job and who doesn't. So I have a whole library of that that I don't always share publicly. I, I never I never share who the, the people are or the companies. Uh, I sometimes share the examples, but anonymize them. And so one of the, the good ones we saw recently was from an infrastructure provider, I won't name who. They mentioned that they analyzed our usage, their products, and that and they didn't go into detail in the email, I think maybe for, for obvious reasons, but that they saw some areas we could improve from a security standpoint. And so they sent that to me and they sent that to our CTO. Now that 
you know, really caught our attention, right? Security is super important. And if we're using the product and they notice some things that could be better from a security standpoint, we're going to want to hear them. We get on the call and then they say, oh, by the way, if you switch everything over from person you're currently using to us, you know, there's this incentive or that. So obviously it went from a helpful security call to a, here's how you can spend more with us and some inducement to do that pretty quickly. I think that's another strategy that can work and yeah, referencing usage to add value. I think adding value is really important, but then obviously there is a, you know, a sales component to that where you can have a pretty productive conversation by getting that hook in from value in the first place. Correlated own go to market. You know, how much do you blend product led or sales led, or is it mostly sales led at the moment? We have a pretty heavy sales led component, although our product is self serve. By that I mean we know a lot of the good companies that could really benefit from us. So we have a well defined ICP, not waiting for them to find us, but we're kind of going out and saying, Hey, we're pretty confident we can help and here's how. And so there is a you know, an outbound motion there and an effort to have folks that we think we can help, you know, find us through through our efforts. We also do have a self-serve product, though, and a number of our customers have come through that product and have converted from you know, self-serve usage. And we expect that to be a compounding advantage over time. I think there are a couple of ways that it's important to us. One, we get the dog food correlated and use our own product as a, a way to help find customers and help work with existing customers and, and all that. And it makes our product better. It makes us better at uh, talking about our product. And then I think the other thing is just it's hard to imagine being persuasive about PLG if you're not yourself PLG. So I think we felt from a very early early on that we had to kind of live our values here uh, from that standpoint. So, so while we do have a, a decently sales-led motion, we have our own yeah, PLG motion as well. And now, current trends in PLG. Before we finish up here, let's just zoom right back out. For you, what are the big trends in go-to-market and particularly within product-led or product-led adding sales-led? What are, what are things that are happening that you would point to in your customer base or beyond that you think are going to be increasing as we go into 2023? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me, and, and I don't know if it's just Q4 or what, but there's just so much cold outbound um, that's happening. The thing that I think really sticks out to me are cold outbounding that happens to me for products we're already using that doesn't you know, reference our usage. It doesn't have a hook in related to how we're already using the product. And I feel like that's such a missed opportunity. And and I feel like the days for cold sequencing, for PLG companies at least, maybe sales that it could last uh, for a bit longer. But if you have a self-serve product, the days of kind of just pure cold sequencing, you know, I feel like those days are are numbered. We're beating that drum for our customers and helping our customers do, you know, what what some of the tactics that I described during this this podcast. And then, you know, I would hope that whether or not they're using correlated or 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 not, that most companies and most sales team will kind of move past just pure cold outbounding, especially to people who are already using the product, their existing customer base. I can't end without noting that I saw on your LinkedIn profile that you were at Twitter for a couple of years after being part of a team that got sold into Twitter. So, Tim, what's going on? What's your perspective as someone who's on the inside leading a sales team there in the early days? Or I think that's probably seven, eight years ago. Hey, what are you thinking as you load Twitter each day? Before I joined Twitter, I was a Twitter addict and I was a Twitter addict while I was there. And I'm still a Twitter addict. I have a lot of love for the product. You know, I believe it's a great product and I think it's added struggles for for years being able to be a successful business and compete with the likes of, you know, Facebook or Google or or even 
sort of more peer companies like a Snapchat. I can't comment on the chaos over there. It seems chaotic right now. Who knows? I do think, though, that any opportunity to have the product be the pace of innovation move forward, like that, I hope that's a good thing. And, you know, if there's a if, if there's a way to kind of invigorate the product in the company, you know, I hope that happens. I don't know if it's going to, but I, I certainly do. I hope that happens because I have a, a ton of love and, and respect for the product and I'm a power user. So for better or for worse, uh, every day. I really appreciate the time today, Tim. And as a geek of GTM, of go-to-market, I love what you're doing and helping companies kind of merge and blend and add on layers into their go-to-market motions. I hope uh, for continued growth as you do that for many, many businesses. So thanks for the time today, Tim. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Really enjoyed it. Thank you to Tim for being on the show. Now you have a better understanding of how to implement a sales-led motion on top of product-led growth. Today, we talked about the inconvenient truth of PLG, product-led versus sales-led, aka makers versus shakers, how a PLG team can add a sales function, selling to difficult personas, and current trends in PLG. Make sure to give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson from Tim was your favorite. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.